the day that you have made Whatever comes, I won't complain For all my hope is in your name And that your joy awaits my praise I give thanks for all you have done And I will sing of your mercy and your love Your love is unfailing Lord, I am grateful When I was down You brought me out You set my feet on high going on. We are asking families with preschoolers to register their children for Sunday mornings in the preschool ministry. Registering in advance will help our teachers and volunteers to prepare supplies for each child and limit contact between classroom items. Child care will be provided in the preschool ministry during the 11 a.m. service beginning next Sunday. For more information, contact preschool director Angela Kaysen. Pastor Derek is hosting Student Camp at the Point July 26th through 29th from 6 to 9 p.m. Each night there will be food, games, worship, and guest speakers. Camp is open to students that have completed grades 6 through 12. Cost is $25 per student with a family max of $50. Register at longviewpoint.org or the Longview Point mobile app. Save the date for the Women's Ministry Fall Retreat. The retreat will be held here at the Point on Saturday, October 10th. Visit longviewpoint.org or the Longview Point app to register. We are now accepting monetary donations to provide clothing and necessities for children in need from our community this fall. If you would like to contribute, donations can be made online or dropped in the give drop box or contribution boxes at the exits of the sanctuary. For more information, contact Christy Douglas. That's what's going on at The Point. Let's expand as kingdom across the street and around the world.
song shall rise to
give you our faults our failures lord you don't you don't seek perfection in us father you just want us to follow you and lord we want to oh lord we want to be like your son 
So this morning, Father, we just thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, for what he did for us on the cross, what he paid for us, the penalty that we could not pay ourselves, Lord. You, you bore that for us, and we give you glory. So this morning, we just want to say thank you because you are worthy. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, the fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love. And righteousness Scorned by the ones he came to save Until on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on him was laid Here in the death of Christ I live I find my 
till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I'll stand here in the power of Christ we stand good morning Longview Point I hope that you're doing well where you are I want to encourage you this morning as uh, every Sunday morning in this online format that you set aside any distractions and gather the family, get your Bibles in hand and on the ready. Let's study God's Word together. We're going to be looking this morning at Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 30, continuing our study, Always Rejoicing, in the book of Philippians. This has been a fun study for me so far, an exciting study and challenging in a spiritual, practical way. And I hope that uh, it's proving to be the same for you all as well. What we're going to talk about this morning are our desires, the things that we want. Here's what I've come to experience in life and in ministry. People are, for the most part, going to do what they want to do. Uh, this is sort of an inescapable reality of who we are. Often I think on Sunday mornings or in the context of preaching and exhorting people to a certain a command to answer, answer a, a moral imperative of the gospel, or even to answer the gospel call to salvation, people are going to respond the way they naturally desire to respond. It takes the Lord turning our desire, desires. And so many times in my mind, it's, it's a deeper issue than simply being required to meet a certain expectation or adhere to a certain command. It's about who we are in our heart of hearts. In fact, there are times when we can force obedience to a moral imperative, and it, it really is not reflective of who we are in our heart of hearts. Jesus speaks to this in the Sermon on the Mount and countless other passages. It's about who we are inside. Uh, Jesus says of the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs, meaning you look good on the outside, but on the inside you're filled with dead men's bones. It takes a turning of our desires first. And so we're really talking about what is a root issue here in Philippians chapter 1. What we see in the example of the Apostle Paul is a, a heavenly desire, desires that are shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, desires that run contrary to the desires that are so common in the world and are common to humanity in general. We're going to deal with that on a little deeper level as we work through this passage. But I want to encourage you, even as we begin, to think about the things that you want the most in your life. Do those desires accord with the gospel? Are they in conflict with your confession of faith, with your confession that you have believed the gospel? Do you genuinely want for the things that Christ desires within his own heart? In this union with Jesus that we're supposed to have by the gospel, can we genuinely say that our hearts are aligned with that of our Savior, Jesus Christ? I think what I'd like to do when we begin reading here is to back up to verse number 20. I was in a conversation with the pastors earlier this week about why we broke the passage the way we did on last Sunday. Um, there's really not a, a good place to break the passage, last week's passage, the, the, to this week's text. Verses, uh, verse 20, rather, serves as something as a transition into this section of Philippians chapter 1, but the flow of thought uh, might be better maintained if we pick up in verse number 20. Paul says there, My eager expectation and hope is that I'll not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always, with all boldness, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I'm pressured by both. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of me your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come to see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel, 
not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your deliverance. And this is from God, for it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him, having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. May the Lord bless the, the reading and the preaching of His Word. Now, in this discussion of Paul's desires, there are a couple of deep and abiding desires that Paul describes in verses 21 through 24. Paul says in verse 21, For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. The two desires that, that dominate Paul's thought, that control his heart, that are the checks against this earthly experience of imprisonment and hardship and pain and suffering, is a desire to live in the service of Jesus and a desire to die in the service of Jesus. Paul says, for me, in my mind, in my experience, from my worldview, my perspective, living is Christ. In other words, to live is to live in service to the King, pouring myself out in service to the King for the advancement of His kingship and His kingdom here on earth. For me, Paul says, at the same time, dying is gain. If I live, I serve the King in the here and now. If I die, I serve the king in the there and then. Dying is preferable, according to the Apostle Paul here, in this strange but not fatalistic way. To die is to be in the immediate presence of Jesus. To die is to be alleviated of the pains and the struggles of the present age. To die is to be freed from the bondage of sin in the here and now. To die is to be perfected in sanctification. To die is to be liberated from this earthly tent and to be glorified in heaven forever. To die is to be authority over the angels now subject to the kingship of Jesus and those underlords in service to Him. Living as Christ and dying, Paul says, is gain. In verse 22 he says, Now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which I shall choose. The expectation of the Apostle Paul is that so long as he is alive and at work in the here and now, that his labor is not in vain in the Lord. Even when there may not be apparent fruit, Paul makes uh, no place for the idea that he might labor in vain or might labor without fruitfulness or labor without some degree of eternally significant success. For me to live on means fruitful work. And I'm hard-pressed by both, he says in verse 23. I have the desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Paul sees benefit for the church in the, in the continuation of his earthly life. Paul sees benefit for himself, absolute, unbounded joy in his departure from this earthly life and his meeting with King Jesus. In verse 25, he explains that since he's persuaded of the usefulness of his life, how his life might benefit the church at Philippi, and for that matter, might benefit the church in general, he is, in light of that knowledge, confident that he'll remain and continue with them for their progress and their joy in the faith. Everything here has an outward perspective, right? The Apostle Paul is not primarily interested in his physical or personal well-being, to live as Christ and to die as gain. He sees himself being poured out in service and sacrifice to the king. This is reflected elsewhere in the writings of the Apostle Paul in his second imprisonment. Uh, written, uh, he writes 2 Timothy, and from that second imprisonment experience, he writes that he's run the race, that he's finished his course, that he has fought the good fight, that there awaits for him the crown of righteousness laid up in Christ. He sees his life as this small season of time, this brief window of opportunity within the broad context of eternity, within which time he can impact the world as best he possibly can for the advancement of the gospel. But he certainly does not see himself as uh, seeking after personal ambitions or foolish gain in the here and now, Paul's outlook is entirely driven by this desire to see the world know Jesus as the Savior of his life. So these two desires control everything for the Apostle Paul. 
his desire to live in service to the king and his desire to die in the service of the king. I would submit to you that those two desires are of critical importance for the believer. If we have genuinely believed the gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of our soul, a gospel that acknowledges the resurrection of Jesus, that guarantees the resurrection of all who have placed their faith and trust in Him, that we are now able to live, as we described last week, we're able now to live in a way that is free. We have been liberated from sin's claim on our life. We have been liberated from the penalty of sin. We have been liberated from the fear of death. We have been set free to live in service to the King. Because unlike the world around us, we are completely aware of the reality that this life is just a brief pilgrimage, that what awaits us on the other side is of greater importance to us than anything that this world could afford. We can risk life and limb and live dangerously for the advancement of the gospel. We can live unlike others because of what awaits us in Jesus. This is now made bearable. Our existence here, even when marked by pain and suffering, sickness and sadness and loss, is bearable because of what awaits us in Jesus. It's the old illustration of the runner who can see the finish line in the distance. And although he, his tank may be running empty, he's able to persevere for the duration of the race because he sees what awaits him at the end. We now see what awaits us in Christ at the end of our earthly race. And so we're able to muster the strength to bear with the pain, the suffering, the indignities, the challenges, the difficulties of life in the here and now, and to run the course that's been set before us in order to bring great honor and glory to King Jesus. Living as Christ and dying as gain in the heart of the Apostle Paul. And when living as Christ and dying as gain in the heart of any blood-bought believer, we become dangerous to the devil. We become valuable to the kingdom. Satan shudders and heaven rejoices at what God might do through men and women who are committed to this outlook, living as Christ and dying as gain. So Paul describes here two great desires, to live in the service of Christ and to die in the service of Christ. There's a second thing here in verse number 25. We've read the verse, but I want us to revisit this verse again. Paul says, since I'm persuaded of this, making reference to, to being persuaded of the reality that his continuing to live would serve the benefit of the church, I know that I'll remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of me your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Now notice what Paul does not say here. Paul does not say, I've come to realize that the Lord has more for me here, and so these are the personal goals or ambitions I've established for myself. This outward perspective continues to control the heart of the Apostle Paul. His desire to live in the service of Christ and his desire to die in the service of Christ has with it this outward perspective that sees one's life as being poured out in service to the king and the people of the king. It became sort of popular a few years back for people to say the, the, the little proverb, it, it's an error, but it was kind of an earthly, worldly proverb, that some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. What we see in the Apostle Paul is the insanity, the error of that slogan. In fact, Paul says, he seems to embody here, that the more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good we are. The better our focus, our attention, our heart is set, our desires are fixed on living in the service of Christ, dying in the service of Christ because of what awaits us in heaven with Christ makes us of greater benefit in the here and now. We are at our best within the kingdom when our heart's desire is heaven with Jesus. For the Apostle Paul, being heavenly minded means prioritizing the spiritual progress and the joy of those within his care, even over his personal well-being. So this is not for Paul. I've come to realize that God has more for me to do here, so I know that my time is not as short as it might otherwise be, and these are the things A, B, and C that I hope to achieve in the time that I have left. 
Paul's interest, Paul's concern is fixed on the progress of the church, that is, the sanctification of the church, the building up of the church, the encouragement of the church, the equipping of the church, the the help of the church in order that they might be what God intends that they would be here on earth. My goal, Paul says, is your progress in the faith and your joy in Jesus Christ. So not only is the Apostle Paul pouring himself out in service to the king, he's pouring himself out into the service of the church. This heavenly mindset helps us to do that. Now, I want you to think about the kinds of things that we typically desire. And it's very easy for us to get sidetracked and to slip into this kind of worldly pattern with our life, meeting the expectations of society, and even sometimes meeting the expectations that we establish for ourselves within the church with regards to what is acceptable Christian behavior. Like, as a Christian, we're going to achieve certain things. We're going to be middle-class people who work at jobs that provide for us gainful employment. We're going to have this kind of house. We're going to have this kind of family. We're going to do this kind of things with our family. We're going to achieve these kinds of goals within our life. And certainly, with following after Jesus and observing the precepts of Scripture, There's a certain degree of of progress that should be expected, even from a worldly perspective. But those are not the things that drive us, right? We're willing to throw caution to the wind. And in certain contexts where the system does not allow that progress be made on the basis of observing Christ's commands, we embrace the challenges that come with faithful obedience. Because faithful obedience is, is in some ways a means to an end of bringing honor and glory to Christ here on earth. But always and everywhere, we're driven by this heavenly mindset that says, I want to live in Christ's service and I want to die in Christ's service, right? So our focus is not personal. Our focus is outward. Our concern, our interest is in how we can be of service and benefit to those around us. How we can help the people in our life progress in their faith and have joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if if we can just recap here the outline. Paul describes two great desires. This is the first point in our text, to live in Christ's service, to die in Christ's service. And then the second thing that I want you to see is that Paul is so heavenly minded that he prioritizes the well-being of others over those of himself. Now That's the outline in summary form. The third thing I want us to spend a little time with here. Paul describes in verses 27 and following what his great desires for the church are. I think this is an explanation of what Paul means when he says, I'm pursuing here your progress and joy. When he talks about the progress of the church and the joy of the church, this is perhaps what he has in mind. In verse 27, the Bible says just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the language that Paul chooses here in verse 27 is very specific, and it would ring true with the church at Philippi. Live your life in a manner worthy of the, go- of the gospel utilizes a word there that has the same root, the same background as uh, the Roman term for a city, polis. We talked a few weeks back, a couple of weeks back anyway, about Philippi as a Roman colony or Philippi as a Roman polis, a Roman City. It's the same language from which political comes from in, our, um, in, in the English language. But he, he's appealing here. When he says, uh, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, what he is saying is, be a, a citizen in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. The language of polis would have brought to mind the idea of Roman citizenship. But he's not talking here about earthly citizenship. He's talking about citizenship in the kingdom. Be a kingdom citizen in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Be a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus in a manner worthy of the gospel. That is, live in a way that is consistent with your citizenship. Live in a way that is consistent with the culture of the kingdom to which you belong. Walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He says in verse 27, continuing, then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I'll hear about what you're standing, hear about that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel. He begins to get in to what are the consequences of living as kingdom citizens. Paul's desire for the church 
is that we would live in a manner that is consistent with kingdom citizenship. Kingdom ethics are imbibed in our life. We, we walk in a way that makes it clear for the world around us to see that we are not of this world, but of a world that is to come. That we are not subjects of an earthly king, but subjects of the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. I think, I, in fact, I'm convinced that one of the challenges the church is up against today is that the world is really confused about our message and our ministry. They hear us say one thing, and then they see us conduct ourselves in a manner that's often completely contrary to what the Bible teaches and the message that we preach. If you are to be taken seriously as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to live your life in a manner that is worthy of King Jesus. You're going to have to, to make adjustments and kill sin in your life and pursue personal holiness and righteousness in such a way that it becomes clear to the world around you that you are different than those about you. Now, this should be becoming increasingly easy as more and more we are living in a crooked and perverse generation, and that perversity is increasing at a rapid pace. But what I see happening is that the per, as the perversion of the present generation increases, so too the perversion of the church is increasing. If we're going to be valid, credible witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to have to live a life that speaks credibility and validity, a, a life that's shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, walking in a manner that's consistent with our kingdom citizenship. The first desire that Paul expresses here for the church is holy living, that we would live again in a manner that's consistent with kingdom citizenship. There's a second thing here, and we've already alluded to this or spoken to this in what we read from verse number 27. If we go back to that second sentence in verse 27, Paul says, then whether I come, to come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel. The second desire that Paul has for the church here is for their unity. That there would be togetherness in the gospel. Now, I've mentioned a couple of times over the past uh, few weeks the, the urgent need for unity in the church. And I don't, I don't say that in light of any conflict or tension or friction within our own fellowship. I always feel like that, that sort of suspicion hangs over any sermon that focuses on unity. I'm unaware of any disunity within the fellowship of our church. I speak to that because I've, I've seen it tear asunder the body of Christ and hinder the advancement of the gospel, hinder the outreach and evangelistic efforts of churches. There's all the ever-present danger is that we become divided among ourselves and therefore ineffective in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can get sidetracked by focusing on issues that are of less than primary importance for us. And I, I, I fear, I fear, because even if there's not disunity within the local assembly, and there are many churches, I would assume, that operate without disunity, who enjoy peace and harmony within the context of, of their local assembly, there nonetheless exists, exists a great deal of disunity within the church at, at large in the Western world today. And, and, and I, I think that probably the thing that will alleviate the presence of discord for many churches is a great deal of pain and suffering and even persecution. When persecution comes, it has a way of putting things into perspective. And so there might be a bit of a call here that we would run to one another, that we would do as Paul describes here and be standing firm in one spirit with one mind and working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel before we find ourselves going through the refiner's fire of persecution that will invariably push us back together as a body. Pain and suffering and persecution have a way of putting things into perspective. Paul's desire for the church is for, for their holy living, for unity among them, and then something again that's already been spoken to in the closing words of verse 27, for fruitful workers. He prays that they be working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel, not being frightened in any way by their opponents. 
His desire is that the church at Philippi, and I believe Paul would have said his desire for all churches everywhere in every era and every generation, and certainly my desire for the people of Longview Point is that every member be actively advancing the gospel, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those they come in contact with. There are times when I spend a fair amount of time thinking about strategy and how we might better reach Hernando and how we might better reach DeSoto County and even at times how we might better reach the region and the world. And, and invariably I find myself coming back to this reality that if somehow, some way, we're able to mobilize the 1,400 members of our fellowship with the sweet gospel of Jesus Christ on our mouth, there is no end to the kingdom impact that we stand to make. Paul desires not that some members of the church, but that all members of the church be faithful workers in the vineyard, faithfully sharing the good news of the gospel. Faithful workers that embrace this kind of outlook described in our text, where we say of ourselves, every member says of, of himself or herself, for, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. My goals are not earthly, but heavenly, and I'm willing to pour myself out in service to the King and the people of the King because of what awaits me in eternity in the presence, the perfect presence of King Jesus Christ. There's a fourth thing that Paul asks or desires for the church. He desires not that they be afraid in any way by their opponents. And he explains that this is a sign of their destruction, but of your deliverance. And this is from God. For it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I had. Paul's desire is that they not be afraid in the face of persecution. Now, Presumably, the church at Philippi is facing some persecution. There seems to be a fair amount of persecution in the first century church experience. But he wants them to know that when the persecution comes, that when the hardship comes, that it's not evidence of the victory of their opponents. Rather, it's evidence of their defeat. It's evidence of their victory in Christ, for so often this is the means of God's advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. How often can we make this observation? Seldom does the gospel go forward apart from persecution, pain, and suffering. When it comes, it's the death moans of the enemy. There, there is a, a, a touch of a reminder, perhaps, that our war is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of the air. Paul encourages them, do not worry when the persecutions and the hardships come. I, I, I wonder what effect this might have for us if we run recent experiences through this paradigm, right? So we see all of these things happening and virtually every conversation in the corner of every Christian church and around every water cooler within the Christian community recently is the plight of our country and how bad things are and how negative things seem to be, the bleak outlook, things are worse than they've ever been. All of our conversations seem to be doom and gloom. And the outlook of the Apostle Paul is not that this spells disaster for us, but that this may in fact be evidence of great victory just on the horizon. This is not evidence of the defeat of the church or the impact of the gospel being beat back by the darkness in some way. These are the death moans of the devil. The victory belongs to Christ. So that we're, we're no longer dismayed by the difficult things that we see happening, the troublesome things that we see happening, the tumult in our society. Rather, we are encouraged that within this context, it might just be that as he's always done, Jesus would choose this hour to do among his greatest works. Now, what the Apostle Paul says in verse 29 is sobering. He says, for it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, having the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Paul says here, it has been given, it has been ordained by God, not only that the church at Philippi would believe in the gospel, but that they would suffer for the gospel and that in many cases they would suffer even as they had observed the Apostle Paul's suffering.
I would say to you that in the same way that it was true for the church at Philippi, it is true for us today. That just as it has been appointed by God that we would believe in the gospel, it has been appointed by God that we would suffer for the gospel. And perhaps it may be that for some of us it has been appointed that we would suffer in the same ways that the Apostle Paul suffered even as he wrote the letter to the church at Philippi. Now, if you don't have this kind of perspective, if your desires are earthly, then that reality may be more than you can bear with. But if your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, and your life's ambition is to be of service to the King and His people, and to die in service to the King and His people. There are no hurdles too great to overcome. There are no pains too deep to, that we couldn't bear with them in the here and now, right? Everything is put in a different light. Everything is put in a different perspective. But, it, but until we want this, until this is our desire, we, we won't be the kingdom citizens that God intends for us to be. So I, I'm, I'm convinced that we, we really want for this sort of sheep-goat hybrid experience in the kingdom where we're able to have all of the fruits and supposed benefits of life in the here and now and all of the fruits and the benefits that are to be found in Christ in the there and then, right? So we want to have our cake and to eat it too. What the Apostle Paul says is that I, I count it all loss for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm going all in. All my chips are in in service to the King. I'm going to live in the service of Jesus and I'm going to die in the service of Jesus. And, and as simple as that sounds, and as cliche as that may read for you this morning as we study this passage together, it is a revolutionary reality. When you come to terms with the fact that we are, are not living for the here and now, but for the there and then, it radically changes your outlook on life. There's a constant wrestling with this, right? As a father, I, I find myself wrestling between, struggling between the reality that I'm, I'm required to provide for my family at a certain standard and to make a way for them into the future with regards to my children and, and perhaps even grandchildren. The proverb says a, a righteous man leaves an inheritance for his family. And at the same time, this pull of the gospel on my life to, to, to go reckless, abandon, right? And just pour it all out in service to the king. I get that there's friction, that there's a tension there. But, but, but that... That balance is better struck when our heart's desires are, are not set on the things of this world, but on the finish line and the commendation of the king that says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. I pray, God, that this morning as we think about this passage and what it so simply teaches us this morning, God, that you would help us for just a moment to look beyond this world, to give us eyes of faith, to see what awaits us in Jesus. Lord, might we count that above anything that this world could offer. I pray that you would do a work in our heart, that you would turn our heart's desires, that our cravings, that our longings, that our most earnest desires would be for the things of heaven and not for the things of this world. And God, when they grab us, and they so often do, when the things of this world establish themselves as idols in our heart, help us, Lord, to cast them down, to cut them off, to consider Jesus and the measureless value that He holds for us. Help us to remember what we say so often that Christ and Christ alone is worthy of our worship, our praise, and God, even our service. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If we're honest with ourselves this morning, there are areas of our life that could only be characterized as worldly. 
there are ways that the world sort of sucks us in, right? There's this constant gravitational pull that the world has on us. It pulls and tugs at our affection. It, it pulls and tugs at our heart. It pulls and tugs at our attention. This morning, I would encourage you as, as believers to take some time to prayerfully consider Jesus, to meditate on who He is and what He's done for you and what He's done for me. On the cross of Christ, His suffering, the shame that He suffered there. On an empty garden grave where He rose again that we might have victory through Him. On the reality that He is the one who is worthy of our worship and our praise. And think for a moment about how petty all the things of this world are. How insignificant they are. Set them aside and fix your attention on Jesus Christ. Maybe you're watching and being forced to come to terms with the fact that there's such inconsistency with what you've said with your, with your mouth and who you've in reality been with your heart. We don't always live out the things that we say with our mouth, but we always invariably live out the things that we believe in our heart. Maybe your actions are telling an entirely different story than your confession has told in the past. You'd have to come to terms with the reality that there's an inner work that must be done, that your desires must be uh, revolutionarily changed, radically changed by the power of the gospel. And you would believe and trust on Him. Maybe you've believed but never been faithful in baptism. God has been at work in the hearts of lots of people who've been watching in these online services over the past four months or so. Whatever the case would be, as the Lord works and moves in your living room and your car as you're driving along, whatever the case would be, wherever you are, reach out to us and let us know what the Lord is up to in your life. We'd love nothing more and would be greatly encouraged by some information as to how God's at work in your life. And we'd certainly love the opportunity to pray with you about new decisions that are being made, new resolve to follow faithfully after Jesus and to talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to receive the forgiveness of sin and the promise of everlasting life. Uh, the numbers of our pastors are on the screen in front of you. You can reach out to us there. You can find information about our church and ways to connect on our app. You'll find it in the app store under Longview Point Baptist Church. Uh, download the app and follow along with us there. Please stay connected uh, with what God is doing here with the restart and reopening and scheduling and various changes that are being made. We're still inching along bit by bit, trying to get back to some degree of normalcy here. Pray for us. Know that we're praying for you. Just because you're out of sight doesn't mean you're out of mind. Know that we can't wait to see you face to face very, very soon. Have a good day in the Lord.